So for doing research for this episode, right, Mo? I did. I tried to watch the um, Musk's latest appearance on Joe Rogan. He went, goes on a whole spiel on how to pronounce the baby's name. Okay. I think that really is the biggest question when it comes down to Elon Musk. Oh, I mean, one of many. One um, of many. How do you pronounce the baby's name then? So I think the way, and I'm probably gonna butcher it anyway. Just um, and how he puts it is X Ash A12. So I think that's it. And um, mm-hmm. also, and what he talks about is how he didn't really have much of a say in it, and it was just Grimes uh, naming him. <laughs> um, my favorite take on the baby name, um, which I saw on a linguistics Facebook page, is that the X at the beginning is like the Greek letter Chi. Um, the uh, A-E sounds like an A. Uh, and then a. a. Then there's the letter A, which makes the A sound. And the 12th letter of the alphabet for A12 is um, L. Uh, so together the name is pronounced Kyle. Um, Kyle. Kyle Musk. Um, so he, is he going to punch through a drywall? Then? <laughs> <laughs> um, Elon a- Musk, man. He's been going crazy on Twitter. Yeah, we talk about like, Twitter really a lot. Can't, um, yeah, we kind of do. I guess we are that kind of leftist, right? I guess that's who we are. Um, but he's just been everywhere, and more so than he usually is. Yep. Um, especially because he's been at the front lines of the debate of like opening up America, and just been trending everywhere. Yeah, I think one of my favorite things to come out of Musk's like recent tweet tirades has been the red pill tweet, the take the red pill tweet. Which, I mean, you know, like, you know, the red pill is in reference to... Yeah, just um, being aware of... Sort of. I mean, so you have the red pill in The Matrix, yeah. which is meant to... Uh, you're, it opens you up to the system, and you, you can see everything, and you're not complacent anymore. But it's being Spoiler appropriated... Alert, but yeah, but it's been appropriated by, like, men's rights activists and the alt-right and, like, edgy, cool people who are like, uh, we, we see through the lies of the system. We know what's going on. It's the Jews. Um, those people, they take the red pill. Um, so what was really funny was when uh, Musk put out the red pill tweet, Ivanka Trump commented on it, saying, like, uh, taken or something like that. I forget what she said. Yeah. And then Lily Wachowski, one of the trans sisters who wrote uh, and edited The Matrix, she commented... Fuck both of you. And oh my god, that felt so good to see that. It's just so powerful, right? So powerful. <laughs> Another thing that also came up, like, we can talk a bit about The Matrix a bit more because it is like a great piece of leftist uh, literature. Yeah, and it's um, such a great metaphor of the society that we live in right now. We totally. Should, we can just do an episode on that entirely. Yeah. Another tweet that came out around that time was from Grimes' mother, Elon's girlfriend's mother. Yeah. And she said, uh, imagine having like your partner spend her nine months in um, pregnant and then having like two weeks of a tough labor and then spouting some men's rights bullshit right after. She was attacking Elon for the red pill tweet. Yeah. And I thought that was great. Yeah, good um, on her to call him out. Good on her to call him out on that. Yeah, I think Elon Musk is interesting for a number of different ways. And it's not just because he makes cool cars yeah. and he's a space Karen, right? But <laughs> it's interesting because of how controversial that he is and how controversial he has gotten recently like his whole approach to politics and all right yeah i would say that elon uses politics and twitter the same way kanye uses politics and twitter uh and i think in a lot of regards kanye and elon are, are very much the same person i think like they both they're both um renaissance men they're both they try to have their fingers in all the pies at once they want to be 
artists and they want to be engineers and they want to be presenters and they want to be they're entrepreneurs. They're both polymaths. They're, yeah, they're poly, like, every, they're poly people. Uh-huh. Um, or at least they try to present themselves in that way. And the other big striking similarity between them is how fluid their politics are and how actively they promote the fluidity of their politics on Twitter to incite a response. They're both very good at getting a headline. Whenever they want a headline, they yep. always get a headline. I was saying before, if you like Elon, but you don't like Kanye, you're probably just a racist. <laughs> I, I, see, I see very little difference between the two of them. Yeah, the politics of controversy, right? Which yeah. um, is an art form that Kanye pretty much mastered. And you don't name your kid XA, yeah, A12 mean, if you don't care Kyle, about it. like even. Can I just like, I just want to do a little tangent before we say hi proper, yeah? Yeah, go for it. There used to be some kind of beauty in decadence. <laughs> like, there used to be some kind of art to being extravagant, uh, some prestige to it, some culture to it, right? Like, it doesn't exist anymore, right? And I think, like, you look all around society, and it's like, what we used to build these really extravagant kind of Greco-Roman, like, style buildings in the plazas, and that was our wealth and our extravagance. And now we have these boring glass towers everywhere, <laughs> and... Elon naming his baby after a freaking plane. Was it from Star Wars or something? Like Or the military. Yeah, whatever. Is this does he think he's being some kind of like neo extravagant through this? And like I guess we can just chuck Neo on anything, but like <laughs> I don't know. There used to be some beauty to being decadent, and now it's just kind of like eh. We get Elon Musk and Kanye. Elon Musk, Kanye and Kyle. Uh, the Holy Trinity. Um <laughs> It's interesting because I think when I think and again another bit of a tangent, right? Because I think like I'm a big Kanye fan. You're a big Kanye fan. Yeah. A I, little hesitation over there. Yeah, but, I'm a recovering Kanye fan. And I, I think it's when we, or just it's just more of a general note on standing anyone in general. Yeah. General note on being general, but um, it's that there needs to be caveats to it, right? Mm-hmm. You need to be able to separate the art from the artist. Yeah. When you appreciate someone, it's important to be aware of their flaws when you're praising or valuing their greatness. So when it comes to Kanye, I will still listen to a Kanye song, but like I will acknowledge the fact that his politics is whack. Yeah. Right. When it comes to Picasso, I will acknowledge. Um, like how blatantly sexist and racist he was, but I will also appreciate his artworks. Yeah. And when, so when it comes down to Elon Musk, right, we should be able to um, give him credit when it's due, but also cr- call him out on all his bullshit. Yeah, for sure. And uh, with that, I'd like to say hello. Welcome to the Azad Project. I'm Moon. I'm Rayan. And uh, we're pleased to have you back with us. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us again. And today we're going to talk about Elon Musk. Elon Musk. So uh, yeah, let's give Elon some credit. I think it's important to draw a distinction between people like Elon who have an extravagant, number, uh, extravagant amount of wealth, but who are spending that wealth in kind of exploratory, innovative capacities. So every billion dollars that Elon spends on a ridiculous project, like the Flamethrower Project, is a billion dollars he's not spending on a, a multi-story mansion. And I think there's something good in that i think there's something valuable yeah he's indulging in his creativity yeah and and in that process he's creating jobs right so i guess a lot of and um because he's a smart dude as well like he graduated from mit he created paypal he's in charge of a number of different successful ventures so like i mean even when we make fun of or criticize um musk it's like i mean we would be doing ourselves a dis ourselves a disservice if you don't point out the fact that he is 
like I mean he's a um <laughs> say it um that he is a smart guy and yeah. that there are good qualities to him. I'll say in his history, right? So yeah. Elon Musk's dad ran a uh, emerald farm in an emerald mine in um <laughs> emerald farm. <laughs> he ran an emerald mine in South Africa. So um when it comes to labor exploitation, there's it doesn't get any more exploitative than literally running an emerald mine in apartheid South Africa um, and profiting off of literally slavery and exploitation of a completely helpless working class. Yep. Elon Musk grew up with that kind of uh, exploitation around him. And for like where I give him a lot of credit is he's put a lot of work into denouncing his father. He, he has called his father the most terrible human being. And I know before his 18th birthday, he used his mother's uh, Canadian... A citizenship to get himself a Canadian passport which he then used to emigrate to the States where he could focus on his dreams away from his father uh, without his father's permission so I give him credit for that because yeah any successful person most likely had a successful parent yeah 100% there's very few billionaires that exist today that did not have a huge amount of startup capital from their parent and the same thing is true for artists the same thing is true for musicians a lot of the most famous ones had a lot of startup capital Elon Musk he came from literally an apartheid emerald mining family there's a lot of startup capital there and he denounced that to focus on becoming a self-starter instead yeah so, and he's self-made to a meaningful extent where a lot of the other people aren't and yeah. it's yeah and i think it is really important that we acknowledge he that. started off developing some game uh some computer game he sold that used the investment from that to um set up a uh, payment transaction service that eventually merged with yeah. PayPal. He really is just a smart, big old nerd, right? Do you remember yeah. the bald patch that we had? That oh, we had? his hairline was terrible. Yeah, and um, now it isn't because all, all you need to have a good hairline is a lot of money. It's true, and he was also bullied a lot. I have a lot of respect for for that. He he went through a lot of bullying to the point where I think he was thrown down a flight of stairs or something by oh, some yikes. bullies. He was hospitalized for it. So where Elon deserves credit in a lot of those capacities, he he did make himself to start off with. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Tesla, I mean, like, even though the, there's a lot of problematic aspects to that, um, is the, the fact that um, he is in the front lines of the f- fight against climate change in the form of just um, perpetuating like electronic cars and normalizing yeah. that. I think that's a benefit, although that creates the argument of green capitalism, which we won't really go into uh, yeah, today. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll like, I'll say about the electric car. So. W- we need to talk about also where credit is not due. Yeah. Electric cars, a good innovation. We need to be going off of oil and gas wherever we can. And electric cars are great. So I, I worked at a senatorial office for a little while last year. One of the projects we were looking at was a electric highway to get from Melbourne City, where we are, um, out to a, a regional town. And one of the problems of Tesla is that their services, like their charge-up stations, only work for Teslas. They're Tesla exclusive. So right. effectively, if you want to start using Tesla infrastructure, it requires you to be able to afford the Tesla in the first place. And that is not uh, a huge, that's not an available proposition for the majority of people. Yeah. Um, so yes, he's doing a good thing by innovating in electric car technology, but he's still a businessman and he's still using that to monopolize the electric car market as well. Yeah, and because I did bring up the point of green capitalism, I'll just also say that, I, I mean, it really doesn't, this approach doesn't make any sense because um, climate change is also a systematic uh, issue, right? Yeah. And uh, as we talked in the last episode, you can't really use the frameworks of a system to defeat it, Yeah. right? You can't really use capitalism to 
solve climate change um, through green cars and like just having billionaires who profit off of that. Well, I think that says something about neoliberalism, yeah. It's, it's really scared of backtracking. It's very scared of changing what it's already got. Mm-hmm. It's all about development and constantly coming up with new solutions to problems. So, for instance, if you are a strongly-minded neoliberal, as in like that is really seeped into your worldview, when it comes to a problem like climate change, we can't solve that problem. Because to a lot of neoliberals, it's really more of a consumption issue. We're consuming too much plastic waste, or, or so we're, we're, we as consumers produce too much plastic waste. Uh-huh. Of course, we understand that it is a production issue, a production side issue. And the consumption issue of it is kind of culturally enforced by... It's the, how it sustains itself. Yeah, it sustains itself through, through that. Something like Musk is exactly what neoliberal solutions look like. Instead of making Coca-Cola and Pepsi change their plastic production policies or whatever, we can start developing new tech that does something different. So invest in electric cars because that's something we can change now mm-hmm. rather than reduce our reliance on coal and gas to begin with to require us to develop Or just invest cars. in public transport and do away with cars in general. We, I mean, we could do that, but he doesn't like the, he's a neoliberal. He doesn't like the public market. Yeah. Um, I guess when we talk about climate change, Mu, um, it, like, we can sort of tie this to the idea of, Mar- of Mars that plays a role in the Musk ideology, right? For sure. Like the idealized vision of like moving to Mars and leaving all the problems of Earth behind as we move there. It's quite poetic when you think of it. Yeah. Um, it's beautiful that Elon Musk, that like I do appreciate the dedication that he has to that vision. Like I remember reading somewhere that every project that he's ever embarked on and all the profit that he's ever made, that he just wants to use all that to get us to Mars. He just really wants to go to fucking Mars and set up a, a Mars colony there and um, just start the Musk empire where Kyle some, mm-hmm. well, someday takes over to become emperor of Jupiter and like you start <laughs> like a neoliberal um, intergalactic hellscape where, um, you know, it's just the Musks ruling the solar system. Well, I'll tell you, I... Sorry, I went on a bit of a... No, no, that there. was okay. Let it out. Um... <laughs> I grew up with a lot of appreciation for Musk. I say grew up. I spend a lot of time appreciating Musk because I, in my like high school life, I was very much into astrophysics and future tech. And I, I, I remember asking a friend of mine once because um, we were talking about how, how do we solve humanity? You know, like <laughs> there's so much shit going on. How do we solve the problem? So he was a communist, which to me was a huge joke. Gross. I was like, what are you talking about? Yuck. Um, to me, it meant he just didn't really understand how like the world works or whatever. And so he was talking about alleviating poverty and stuff. I was approaching this from a more neoliberal mindset of, and there's good faith actors and there's bad faith actors in neoliberalism. And I would consider myself a good faith actor for neoliberalism. Hmm. And in that regard, what I meant was, well, is well, that I- Wait, well, let me just cut you off right there. Well, yeah. What's the di- difference between a good faith actor and a bad well, faith actor then? A bad faith actor knows that neoliberalism is not efficient, and, but it benefits them. They are benefiting off the system, so they will promote the system that they are within. They're grifters for yeah. neoliberalism. For me, I did grow up with the benefits of neoliberalism for sure, but I wasn't directly profiting off of it at the time because I had no idea about how, how wealth or, or, or production or work worked. Okay. Um, for me, I truly trusted the system. I thought we had a good, balanced, public-private system. I thought this was the peak of humanity because we've gotten here, right? So yeah. in that mindset, history is a constant improvement. So we... This is the best we've ever been because we are here now. Uh, that's kind of the idea that I was going off of. Uh, and so when you are a good faith actor in a neoliberalism, you truly believe this is the best functioning system. I had no 
I'd never heard a leftist take in my life. So I truly believe this is the best we can do. But even with this, the best we can do, we still can't seem to solve poverty. We can't solve hunger. So those problems must be unsolvable. So my argument to my communist friend was, we shouldn't be wasting our time and resources, our limited time and resources, focusing on how to solve poverty in Africa. In reality, I was probably saying, like, that's their problem. They should deal with it. Yeah. Uh, I, had a, I had no idea about colonial history or anything like that. So that was a big influence on that. Uh, my argument was we can't solve their problems, so we should solve humanity's biggest problem. The sun's going to explode. Um, <laughs> so you were big-braining it and just... I was galaxy-braining it. Yeah. And, I mean, I heard a quote from Musk as well where he was like... Um, Humanity has to become a, an interplanetary species or we're running the risk of being wiped out by a big mass extinction event. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I am sympathetic of a high school moo in believing that, right? But there's a, a couple of fundamental issues with that. Mm -hmm. The first one being that when you're thinking in such abstract terms and like thinking far ahead into the future, you really lose sight of what's happening in right now. Yeah. Um, and you also forget the fact that poverty and like especially um, poverty even on an international transcontinental scale um, doesn't really need to exist because we have all the resources that we need to give every single person on earth a good dignified life. Yeah. And like the fact that we don't do that right now is a conscious choice that those in power are making. So um, and the other point of that, um, I guess, is that, I mean, when you keep when you just focus on the tech, um, like when you make that argument, right, where like the people with the technology and the resources get to just evacuate Earth, you sort of make a sort of social Darwinian argument. Yep. Where, like, I mean, the people who can't afford to do it or the people who just don't have money or people living in poverty are there just because they are somehow biologically inferior to you. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a very religious aspect to it. Neoliberalism is a, a highly religious thing. 100%, yes. And, I mean, you see that in the fact that, like, what does religion tell you? And, and uh, this is very reductionist take on religion. <laughs> but religion tells you, very straight up, follow these simple rules. And if you follow them well, you'll be granted access to the kingdom of heaven. And if you don't, you will burn in hell for eternity. Yeah, and That's... also like the, it, it is a religion because you can't question certain things in it. Yep. Because when you do, it falls apart, right? For sure. So that's how it's religious in that religion. That's very religious. And when we look at the world that we live in, I mean, you, the same heaven hell thing exists here. If you do well, if you work hard, then you get to live in a mansion and you have like everything taken care of. Yeah. And if you sin by being lazy or unproductive, and you'll be homeless and hungry. And that was your conscious choice because you didn't work hard enough for it. Yeah, you could have chosen like, to do and I different. Mean, the thing that we were talking about in the last episode about cognitive dissonance and uh, neoliberalism, right? Like, it's so bizarre because we just see so many people living in poverty right now in society. Like, we see homeless people and we just somehow sort of rationalize it for ourselves mm -hmm. that it's their fault that they're homeless, yep. that it's their fault that they've made shitty choices in their lives that made them end up in the positions that they're in. Yeah. It's just so bizarre. But that's why we need philanthropy. Like, under neoliberalism, right? Because, so trickle-down economics, right? I think collectively we've understood that it's, it doesn't work. You can't just keep giving profit to the top and expecting it to somehow end up back in the pockets of the bottom. Uh -huh. So the counter to that is philanthropy. Uh, and we'll do an in-depth in discussion on Bill Gates and why philanthropy is a dangerous, dangerous thing later. But, I mean, just very briefly, why it needs to exist, because we don't have any redistribution under neoliberalism. There's no way to get resources to the bottom from the top. 
So we need to rely on the kind heart of the billionaire class to provide us with a refuge from poverty. Yeah. Musk, he does something a little bit different. So Gates, when Gates showed up, he completely revolutionized what philanthropy looks like by being very active in it. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is active. He's not just giving out money. He's being a part of the charity itself. Musk is the next evolution of philanthropy, neo-philanthropy. Just neo-everything, Just really. neo-everything. Uh, the Matrix. Um, <laughs> neo-philanthropy, what I'm calling, is where you're not focusing on just alleviating issues. You're alleviating future issues. So he's looking at getting us to space because that is a charitable endeavor to him, right? He wants us to be able to get off of the bounds of this dying, corrupt planet and move into a utopia that is untouched, that is open for our manifest destiny. Of course, there's many dangers to that. I'll talk, I mean, Musk, when it comes to Tesla, his model for it was he wanted to build a sports car that was accessible to the very rich. He wanted to use the wealth of that car to produce cheaper cars that were accessible to the upper middle class and then go even cheaper. I think he yeah. applies the same model to what he's thinking of with space, what I call Musk's space communism, is he wants to use, use the billionaire class who want to do space tourism to establish a cheaper form of space tourism for the millionaire class and then open that up to the upper middle class and then go down to the working classes. In reality, does that ever happen? No. You'll supply for the billionaire and millionaire class and then that's where all the profit is. So you're just going to move on to the next endeavor. That's a really interesting point you make. And I just want to circle back to um, the point of the philanthropy again, um, just because I think there's a lot in there and just the, psych uh, the psychological aspects of philanthropy, right? I think it's almost Maslowian in terms of like, um, Mm -hmm. you sort of self-actualize through the action of philanthropy. Explain and, the hierarchy for people who don't know what the hierarchy um, is. So, like, I mean, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for those who don't know what it is, is just, it's just something that a philosopher uh, put forward as um, things that humans need to sort of function in society. Yeah. Okay. Is that a fair way of putting it? I think it? that's a pretty fair way of putting it. All right, it. I'm, not, I'm not any psychologist, um, but I'm just putting it up because I think it's, like people, uh, the, ri the rich and the capitalists, right? They have to partake in this act of philanthropy just so they don't come to terms with the fact that they really are leeches and, they that, and that they really are the parasite yeah. of the society. Um, and th th just so that they have some sort of um, like satisfaction that, hey, I'm not just like profiting in a world where there are sweatshops and where there's poverty, I'm also doing something to do yeah. good in that society. They're washing their hands clean of the blood of capitalism. Yeah, and that's a very uh, poetic way of putting it. Yeah, I want to link. So what I'm going to start doing is in the YouTube uh, description. So if you're watching on YouTube, I'll have some links in the description to relevant videos and articles that we might reference or, or like Twitter profiles or whatever. Um, and there was a really great video by the uh, Philosophy Tube channel on um, the concept of liberal communists which was a concept created by uh, Slavoj Zizek. Um, our boy. Our boy Zizek. Uh, and the idea is pretty much of, and it's like, it's a contradictory statement, a liberal, you can't be a liberal communist. <laughs> yeah. So the idea is you have a philanthropist like Elon Musk and he wipes his hands clean of the sin of capitalism by, look, I'm using my wealth from exploitation to create, to provide solutions against capitalism. I am part of the solution, not part of the problem, or I'm turning the problem into the solution. That's what philanthropy is all about. It's about patting yourself on the back and saying, I'm not part of the problem, I'm solving the problem. Um, so Mu, when you talk about wiping your hands clean, right? 
like you um you really think of bill gates because that's mm-hmm. all i think about like through the bill and melinda gates foundation and all and then we think about warren buffett as well yeah like as like i think warren buffett really is the biggest philanthropist out there in the world like even bigger than bill gates because i think he's pledged about giving everything away yeah right the um, giving pledge and all that oh, what oh god i don't want to go on a rant on the giving pledge right we'll now say that for the bill gates episode yeah um so anyway i think warren buffett is really interesting because musk himself makes a distinction between uh billionaires like warren buffett and then billionaires like himself so he makes the dichotomy of the good billionaire versus the bad billionaire, mm-hmm. which I think, which I thought was super interesting that Musk um, was even thinking in those terms, right? So the reason um, he categorizes uh, the likes of Buffett as a bad, quote unquote, billionaire um, is because of the way Buff- people like Buffett get rich, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Buffett is a venture capitalist, right? So in the Muskian ideology, he uh, sees Buffett as not creating any sort of value for society, right? Um, right. Bear with me, Moo, again, as I get a little theoretical over here. Right? Go for it. Um, so Buffett isn't creating any, uh, isn't generating any sort of value, but rather he's just playing around and reappropriating that, that value and making a profit off of it, and that's how he got rich. Mm-hmm. So this isn't just limited to Buffett, of course. You can make this extension to, like a range of capitalists and rich people out there who aren't really generating value but are just getting rich because of interest or like negative gearing or like just um like government policies which favor them yeah and then we have the distinction with the good billionaire which musk categorize uh, puts himself in that category of right so the good billionaire is like one of uh, like is a person who creates value mm-hmm. um, in that sense where you're creating some sort of a product or creating the avenue for the creation of products which per- performs a positive function in society and therefore actively improves the lives of people right so yeah, musk okay. thinks that he's a good billionaire because he's an innovator because he's a scientist and because and and also i guess because he's creating jobs and stuff right so he's uh, playing playing an act he's actively playing a positive role in that in, in that form and he's yeah. just not hoarding wealth by just benefiting out of off of interest or like just playing around with, with value in the abstraction yeah okay so um, why I bring this up is because one, it's just really interesting to me that uh, Musk is self-aware of the fact, and and just the billionaire class is self-aware of the fact that we hate them, and that like there needs to be a distinction between that. Like, I mean, I'll say there's some indication that Musk has read Marx, um, but there's no indication that he's read Marx well. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I guess um, this dichotomy of the good billionaire, bad billionaire, is appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, to a certain degree, because you can, so a lot of people could adopt the policy position where they'll be like, okay, let's uh, get rid of people like Buffett, but let's keep uh, people like Musk because he's a job creator, he's an innovator, and he's doing good, like mm-hmm. the ones that I just stated, right? But this raises the question of whether there can really be a good billionaire, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's such a difficult concept to grasp with. Not just because a billion dollars is a lot of money. A lot of money. A lot. It's a thousand millions, yeah. right? Um, it's make, yeah, I, I think people don't really understand the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. But it's a ridiculous, vast difference. Yeah. You can, I mean, you can imagine a millionaire and then imagine a thousand of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Oh man, yeah. I mean, we're not math majors either. No, <laughs> but I, I think we can all appreciate the fact that billion, a billion dollar is a lot of money. But that's not my point over here. Yeah, I'm not like you're not like I'm not saying that you can't have good billionaires because there's like it's a lot of money. I'm saying that you can't have gross accumulations of wealth because of the way wealth is accumulated in a neoliberal or albeit a capitalist society, right? Yeah. So where this raises the question of where does value come from? Where does wealth come from? Yeah, okay. Right? And I think it's like it's such a big and abstract question, right? We were talking about how this relates to like this is similar to asking the question of where does time come from? Yeah. And but I think what we can agree on is that wealth doesn't come from just like I mean sitting in an executive suite. Um, and just making all the calls of the like that's not where value is generated. No, um, the Marxist approach to understanding value is through labor, right? You put in the effort. You the workers they put in the effort, and through that value is generated. Yep, um, I push back on that. Yeah, because we're putting a lot of effort into this podcast, and it's not generating a lot of value yet. So value must come from somewhere else other than just labor, right? Well, I would argue that it is creating value, if not for our listeners, just for us. Does that labor value theory apply to art? Does it apply to... I mean, if I was to paint a chair, um, would that add any value to it? Because the value has to come from the consumer to some regard, right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, what, what, when you say that... When you put the consumer into the value uh, definition, right? You're taking a liberal approach, actually. Because yeah, okay. then you go, go into the territory of demand and supply. Shit, I guess I was wrong about this whole leftist <laughs> thing. So I think that's just, that's just the thing. There's no agreement. And I mean... Like, I mean, I study economics, right? But even there, I haven't really been able to find an answer of where a value really comes from. Yeah. It's just something that really fascinates me and something that I spend quite a bit of time on trying to understand. But what my point is, of course, is that gross accumulations of value, wherever it's coming from, is what leads to billionaires or just like ultra wealthy individuals in general. And there's something fundamentally wrong um, in the existing of the, uh, this class of people because, that, uh, that, um, because they are coexisting in a society where there are people with nothing. Yeah. Where there are people living in absolute poverty while they are benefiting off of, the, off of a system which lets them exist. Yeah, there's no justification for that kind of in- inequality. Um, I think when it comes to like good billionaires versus bad billionaires, really the distinction is like, are they billionaires who are also innovators or are they billionaires who are not innovators? I mean, there's, to me, there's no role for billionaires in humanity. They don't add anything particularly. Yeah. Innovate, innovation is a completely separate thing to being a billionaire owner. If you have capital, that's a different thing. If you're a creator, an ideas man, an innovator, there's always room for a person like that, regardless of if we're in our current neoliberal society or if we're in some post-revolutionary um, space communist society. Uh-huh. There's always a role for an innovator and a creator. Yeah, but, but there's no like role Buffett. for capital hoarding. Yeah, like people like Buffett, if you're just hoarding capital, you get the guillotine. You get the guillotine. You have no sympathy. No sympathy for, for that. Um, I think value is a funny topic because it's more philosophical than it is economic. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really exist. Time doesn't really exist. These are just things that we believe that we kind of understand, but we don't. But we have indicators for time, right? Like we can look at seconds go up on a clock. And that's not an indicator of where we actually are in time. It's a relative value. Yeah. And we have indicators like that for value as well. Money. Like with Money, growth, you know, we have lines and we have graphs that go up and they go down and they indicate how well we're doing, right? I think, so I want to gear it back to neoliberalism a little bit. Uh-huh. And one of the fundamental flaws of neoliberalism is that it, 
you need to be constantly creating. You have to be always producing, right? You look at a situation like America, where they are fighting hard against these lockdowns. The idea of a lockdown is to be as short as possible because we need people working as much as possible because if we stop producing for a second, we are damaging neoliberalism. It can't sustain itself unless there's constant growth, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know, from your economics kind of background, what is the implication of like always needing to grow? I think it's just really bizarre and you don't really have to have an economics background to like um, understand the oddness of it all, right? Like, yeah. I mean, the way the economy is treated in the current neoliberal uh, model that we exist in, right? Like, it's treated as, a, as an end instead of a means to an end, where we just privilege the fact of economic growth over all else. All we care about is growth. But, what at, at, but at what cost, right? We don't, uh, we don't ask or, or stop to think about the social costs of growth, uh, of the social costs of inequality, and of the social costs of poverty and in the way that it exists. Um, you bring out the lockdown movement uh, that's going on right now, right? Because of the quarantine um, and the pandemic. And then we see uh, the opening up process, uh, the protest that's taken, um, taking place, especially yep. in America. And Elon's had, his, had some stuff to say about that as well. Yeah, Elon Musk is pushing um, really hard on opening America up because his hard. factories are all stopped, uh, like uh, on pause right now, I think. Yeah. Um, and he just really wants, to, uh, wants them to open up. Yeah. What does that say about um, Elon Musk and just capitalists in that position? Um, that it just tells, uh, it just points at the fact that they treat labor as just like any other commodity mm -hmm. that is um, expandable. Yeah. Like you don't have to think about the health and well-being of your workers. You just treat uh, them as a factor of production, which is just going to generate more value yeah. for you. I mean, uh, what Musk says when he tweets "Free America Now," what he really is just saying is, "I want my workers to go back to work." The yeah. people who are at risk from going back to work in the lockdown. It's not Elon Musk. He's not putting himself at risk by opening his factories. Yeah. He's putting his workers at risk who actually do the engineering work. So I have no sympathy for when Elon Musk uh, tweets about uh, factor, um, opening up the factories because he's not putting himself at risk, right? But here's the thing. You're, you're seeing a lot of hatred towards um, those uh, people in America um, like especially in inland America, like in in the Midwestern uh, and the and the the typical Republican states, right? Yeah. You see, uh, like people shitting on the Karens uh, yeah. and like how they're just being really stupid uh, in demanding um, like the opening up of America and their workplaces or just restaurants so they can go so they can go eat. And like the other thing that you can see is that they're almost all of them they're. Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a very important link over here between all that. The geography of it all, the, um, their class, because they're almost all of them are working class, and their po politics, right? It all hints at the fact um, these are people who are disenfranchised by neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. And this is why they voted for Trump in 2016, yep. because they didn't benefit off of, they didn't benefit off of uh, neoliberalism as much as they did in the blue states or as much as they did in the um, American coasts. Yeah. And because of that, like, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say over here, here Mu, is that staying at home is a privilege that only you can do if you have the resources to stay at home. Yeah. And the moment you, that resource gets exhausted, 
you can't really sustain yourself by staying at home, right? For we're, sure. we're seeing the, that in the poorer countries, like in Bangladesh, people are out and about because they don't really have the, like, I mean, in a place where people earn a dollar a day, yeah. you can't really, st- like, if you stay at home, you don't even earn that dollar. How are you going to survive? So, like, in the American context, like, how are poor people going to survive through the quarantine if they're not working they're, and if they can't even get their minimum wage job, right? So you understand their demand and you sympathize with the fact that they're demanding the opening up of their workplace. What they're saying is, I want my livelihood back. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, sorry to cut you off, that has to be true in neoliberalism because it does not allow for public provision, right? Like, the idea of neoliberalism is to transition as much out of a public market as possible into a fully privatized market. And you got to think about America which boasts having the strongest economy in the world, the largest economy in the world, and they can't even afford to take care of their citizens yeah. for a two-month lockdown, three-month lockdown period without those citizens having to go riot to get back to work because they can't afford to take care of themselves anymore. It's fucked up, man. What, it, like, the, what does it say about the system if people are willing to put their lives at risk to go to work? What does it say about the system that we work so hard to keep the line going up and we've worked hard to keep our economies growing strong that we just can't, it's, we still can't use that to provide for our people. What's the benefit if in a time of crisis we can't take care of our own? Yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's just one of the many contradictions of neoliberalism, right? Like, I think that's just going to be a main theme throughout the whole podcast is just how contradictory neoliberalism is. And again, when we say neoliberalism, when we criticize neoliberalism, we're just criticizing the manifestation of capitalism in the current um, reality that we live in. Yeah, our current structures. Speaking of contradictions, what is Elon Musk's political belief? It's so odd, right? So I'll tell you what I've read from him. He calls himself a socialist, but he says he's not a kind of socialist who believes in extracting wealth from the most productive and giving it to the least productive. So to me, I mean, that's a ridiculous statement. (laughs) That's buying into the neoliberal mythos of you work hard, you get the most wealth out of it yeah what even is productivity in that yeah. context um i you know elon musk is not putting in the grunt work on the, on the floor of tesla his engineers are doing that elon's profiting off of it and, and creating a flamethrower company he has quoted marx a couple times but <laughs> always through very shallow readings of obscure like texts of, of, about like french marxist meetings and communist like catch-ups or whatever um, hashtag woke yeah he indicates that he is like I'm going to tie this back to Kanye. All he does, to me, his politics is just shock doctrine. He just loves getting the headlines. And he knows what's woke. He knows what's cool. He knows the kids like social democracy now. He knows the kids are all commies now. So he's going to to venture into that. He's going to to do whatever makes the most mass appeal for him, right? I I read this really interesting take on um, Musk's uh, departure from the typical liberal ideology towards a more um, conservative approach that we're seeing right now, like yeah. referencing uh, the red pill and like being more of a, like, I mean, I guess acting more like a Trump supporter than like your typical Democrat, right? Yeah. Um, the justification was that, y'all remember the Cybertruck that he revealed, that boxcar thing that was everywhere on the internet? I'll speak for everybody, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so like that, right? So the Cybertruck is gonna be a big deal for the truckies across America yeah. who are concentrated in the inland parts of America, right? The, the, your average truckie is a Trump voter. He is, he, is, he is likely to be a he, and he is likely to have um, to be a conservative, right? Yeah. So like uh, the rationale of that, are, uh, the argument that that um, 
uh, that that piece I read was making was that Musk is trying to appeal to the conservative Truckee base by adopting a more um, conservative ideology and just um, going through with it. It's an interesting theory, but I think what really, or to me, what really speaks true all that and what you just said, Mu, is the fact that you can really flip-flop between um, liberalism and conservatism without even breaking a sweat, Yep. right? I think... Um, it ties back to the fact that this is a false dichotomy. Yeah. Like, to, uh, to a certain degree, Trump is a neoliberal as well, just as Obama was, just as Clinton is, just as Biden is, just as... I'd make the pushback that American conservatism is a relative uh, position rather than an absolute position. So conservatism as, like, an ideology is all for traditional, social, uh, traditional values, uh-huh. uh, preserving centralized powers. Um, American conservatism is... a there is represented it's a um, relative you're relatively conservative relative to the liberals right so i mean american conservatism is really just libertarianism um yeah i mean i i accept that point but i guess what i'm trying to say is um in the sense in a meaningful political sense yeah. where the base has essentially sold out to the corporate structures like lobbyists play a big part in both the liberal and the conservative um, politics of america yeah. right like they have all sold out to big corporations they're all in bed with them so and they're all motivated by the goals of these big corporations and the big rich uh lobbyists that are there yeah so i guess in ideological terms they're very different um, conservatism is essentially a reaction to the forces of liberalism. Yeah, okay. But in the manifestation of this politics, they are operating in very similar terms in the sense that neoliberalism doesn't really, ta- doesn't really care what religion you are or what your gender or sex is. It's more of an approach where it's just going to make money regardless of your ideology. Yeah. Um, I think truckies are an interesting case study, right? In the American context, truckies to me, are one of the prime examples of where technocracy fails. So trucking is a difficult job. It requires long hours of transit. You're constantly riding throughout the night. So as part of a regulatory platform to improve the livelihoods of truckies, they've imposed uh, driving limits. You can only drive so many hours in a day, and then you have to rest, or else you might have your license revoked. And part of the technocracy of it is they've developed these sensors that are part of the trucks now, and they will tell how long you're driving for. And they're actually connected to the truckers themselves, not the trucks. Um, okay. So it yeah. tells when they're awake and when they're driving. And it prevents them driving more than a certain number of hours. Uh, and that has cut back on a lot of their livelihoods. Because it cuts them off at awkward times. When if they could just make another hour, it would cut down their trip. But then they have to like cut off for the day and then go to sleep. Uh, at risk of losing their licenses. It's just also surveillance in such a terrifying degree, right? Yeah, well, that's what technocracy leads to, is just uh, surveillance capitalism. But uh, I think they're really interesting because they have been kind of betrayed by the public system because of this public reliance on just tech to solve all of our problems. So they do rely on private systems like Musk to offer them an alternative where they aren't just being forced into weird regulations that damage their livelihoods by technocrats who don't want to listen to them and just want to keep developing weird tech to solve their problems. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to be making because we can see this with the development of neoliberalism, right? Like for those of you who know uh, your economic history, you'd know that neoliberalism is a, uh, like arose as a 
reaction to the Keynesian economic policies that were there, like as a reaction to the welfare state to yeah. a certain degree, where the state would look after you. What neoliberalism said was, no, fuck you. You're just you're just an individual who has to defend for yourself. The state's not going to be there for you, yeah. right? So this opens up the way where philanthropy, like this creates a vacuum, which philanthropy has to sort of step in and take over this creates a this creates room for people like bill gates right because i mean the state isn't going to take care of you someone has to may as well be bill gates yeah i think um another thing i want to say just on that idea of like the the private versus the public and the need for it under neoliberalism you look at like the states and i mean they're trump was threatening to shut down the post office you know in the u.s mm -hmm. the most beloved public institution a necessity for a lot of business owners the, the post system it's a it's universally the most beloved public system, I think, in most countries. Except by dogs. Except by dogs. Musk, one of his big projects is the Hyperloop system, right? So he's got this tunneling company, the Boring Company. Great uh, And he wants to create these huge tunnel projects underneath, um, like, America's more kind of wealthy cities to allow them to get off the roads and do this whole, like... It's, uh, it's, it's actually a really terrible project. Um, and I don't know about that, no. There's a video I'd recommend by a guy called Do Not Eat. He's an urban designer, and he was talking about how unrealistic the projects are. He, he splits tech solutions into two categories, what he calls AM and FM solutions. AM standing for actual machines, and FM standing for fucking magic uh, <laughs> solutions. And so his arguments were, one, uh, it's almost impossible to build the tunnels the way he wants to because... A lot of buildings have deep foundations. You'd be having to get weird permits to uh, work out snaking patterns through all those foundations. Yep. The other being in an enclosed tunnel system, if you have a pileup anywhere in that system, it's impossible. You're not going to be able to get out. Okay. You will probably die in that tunnel if you have an accident. There are issues with the elevator system to get in and out of the, of the tunnels. Do you want to, what was, what's your pushback? Um, my pushback was that I think it's a pretty cool idea, just in the sense that um, not in the Musk sense, where because the Musk came out with the proposal while he was sitting in LA traffic and he wanted to just get from point A to B without mm -hmm. having to be stuck in that, um, uh, uh, stuck in that. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a cool idea when you think about mass public transport and transit. Uh, I remember watching a video on how countries around the world are thinking about adopting it. Like in, or like over EU, you'd have a Hyperloop public transport thingy where you connect all the cities of Europe to each other and just ha like have, like you can just go from place A to B like in a bizarrely short amount of time. And essentially, that reduces the need for airplanes, which would cut down on pollution and all that. Yep. And like the economic plus of that is you unify the labor markets, so that creates a benefit. But that's not the point over here. Like my point is that I mean I, I agree with you on the fact that there might be engineering. Um, like I think we're talking about two different Hyperloop projects. Oh, are we? There's one that's his magnetic rail Hyperloop project, which I think you're talking about. Okay. Which is like the train, like the mass transit system. The other is his... Do they um, operate in vacuums? Like, they both have vacuums? Uh, the other one is just like a car tunnel. for. It's just he's building underground roads. Yeah, that's roads. the Musk model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that I, I find to be ridiculous. Oh, okay. Um, I guess I was just talking about Hyperloops in a more general sense. Well, I, I do think, like... I did want to bring up public transport and mass transit. Uh -huh. Because the amount of time and money he's spending into creating these alternate transport systems... Yeah. 
we should be investing that into public systems and public transport systems. That way, it's, we, it's, it's almost intuitive, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, everyone has access to it. Like, you get rid of emissions in a so much more meaningful way to it. But because we're not thinking about equity in a system that we're operating in, that's not going to be brought It's not going to happen. Yeah. And the danger of this reliance on having public individu- uh, private individuals take over what should be public systems is that they can just hold the whole thing hostage. And up to his whims, he can decide, hey... I don't like the way that you guys are regulating my systems. I will withhold it from you. I will not allow the system to continue running until you cave to my demands. Yeah. He has the power of a union strike as an individual. He as one man has the power that an entire united workforce has against the boss. I guess that's what you have when all the means of production are like when you have private ownership of property. Yeah. Of property. Of property. Property. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's inevitable when you have gross accumulation of capital in the way that we see today. Like um, you just have very unequitable relationships between owners and just the workers, and it's so unfair. Yeah. Um, do we want to touch on? Do we? Should we save that for the Yang episode? Yeah, we'll yeah. Just, we'll talk about automation and like our like our actual recommendations in like a whole episode. Yeah. Right? Okay, that's episode two done of the Azad project. Uh, I hope we've covered Elon Musk in good detail. Yeah, um, um, I understand that we might be a little provocative at certain points, and that is important. Like we don't, and it's okay if you still disagree with us at the end of this podcast because I understand that there's so many Elon Musk fanboys out there. Yeah. But I think my final point would be like, I'm, I don't want to make fun of anyone for liking Elon Musk because I used to love Elon Musk. And I also don't want to give Elon Musk too much shit for like his Mars dreams or whatever. Yeah. There's a lot to give Elon Musk credit for. There's a lot of things not to give him credit for. He's first and foremost, he's a union busting like worker overworking, underpaying as well. Like these are important things to keep in mind. And the other thing is that his solutions are just not the solutions that we really need right now. I hope that we've just made that clear throughout yeah. this episode. And because Elon Musk is so pervasive everywhere on social media and in media in general, I just hope that our listeners would be more critical of him as a person and him and what he chooses to do like in all his ventures and stuff. Yeah. If you have any disagreements or questions about what we were talking about, please send them to us and we can cover them in the next episode. Um, I just want to thank everyone for listening to this one. Uh, and for listening to the last one. Yeah, um, thanks to all our friends who listened to it and um, gave us the views, put a thumbs up on our um, YouTube video. Yeah, got a lot of positive feedback and we will try to implement everything that we've heard from you guys. Yeah, final thing, I'd like to acknowledge the custodians of the land, pay respects to elders past, present, and future. We are recording this on the land of the Kulin Nation. So thank you for having us. Having said that, I'm Mu. And I'm Rayan. Thanks for listening to the Azad Project.